what we are doing for the month of uh, December is we're looking at um, this whole theme of Advent, uh, preparing for the arrival of Jesus. And so what we are doing is we're looking back at the scriptures at those who anticipated Christ and looking at their witness to one who is greater. Uh, And so uh, this, of course, is a a challenging idea, someone greater than myself uh, in our own cultural context, because, of course, the greatest person is me, right? Or you, or right? That's, that is how it works. But the Gospels introduce us to one who is greater than ourselves and anyone else, and whose story defines us rather than the other way around. And so last week, we looked at the witness that Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, uh, uh, the adoptive dad of Jesus, if you will, and it looked at his witness, the witness to the scandal of grace and the way he was willing to absorb shame and bear a reputation that he did not earn. And today we're going to take a look at kind of the opposite direction. So last week was kind of a virtuous witness that pointed in the direction of who Jesus would be. This week we're going to take a look at a dark story, the story we just heard, a tragic example, the witness of Herod, the king, uh, and, and Herod's witness is a witness to the threat of grace. Now, this may not seem like your classic uh, Christmas message, um, and it's, it's not for lots of reasons, because it's honest about the darkness of human nature, and, and it, it takes a look at what happens when that is taken to an extreme and rejection of the good that God is up to in and through Jesus the Messiah. So let's take a look at this story. I'll sum it up here, and then we'll take a look at some of its implications. The first thing that we see in the text is that this, um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it takes place in a place called Bethlehem, which is, in any story, the setting is significant, whether it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or anywhere, right? You need to know that the setting, the setting sets the stage, and this is telling you a very specific story by the setting. Bethlehem is the town of David, Israel's uh, most uh, renowned and favored king in its history. He was the first king after God's heart, and the king that God promised would have an heir or an offspring who would reign on his throne forever. And so Matthew has already introduced Jesus to you as someone who comes from the line of David. And now the story is taking place in Bethlehem. And so we know it's a royal story. And there are several elements to the story that immediately tell us something definitive has happened for the whole world. We're not only in David's town, but now there are these people from the east, these magi who appear, and they're following the stars and the signs in the heavens. And it's, it's actually funny and even comical. I think Matthew may intend it to be comical that you have these figures who do not align with a biblical worldview, and yet they are the ones who the authors of the scriptures are using to say, look at how what the Bible has said is being fulfilled. And so the prophets had long said that God, when his promises were fulfilled, that he would bring all nations into what he was doing, that it wasn't just for Israel, but Israel would be the vehicle through whom all nations would be blessed. And so these magi, non-Jewish people, are coming from the east and paying homage to Jesus in Bethlehem. And it's to highlight the reality that God's purposes are now finally touching the whole world and, uh, and so they come and they ask the current power figure, a guy named Herod, 
what's up and where do we find this king of the Jews? Now, if you're Herod and you are fancying yourself as a king, somebody comes to you and says, hey, where's the king? Right? And they're not looking for you. How are you feeling? Right? Threatened, right? <laughs> and, unless you're really secure. And so uh, here's what this, the text tells us. Um, the, the Magi come and they say, where is the, he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, right? So there's like signs in the heavens even. So we're here to worship him. This is a a symbolic of loyalty. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, Foreshadowing, of course, Jerusalem's eventual rejection of Jesus, but also, right, if there's somebody who's emotionally unstable, who has all the power, and they're troubled, well, you're troubled too, aren't you, right? That's what's happening. It's a destabilizing kind of situation. So here's the trouble. Herod is in current control over the whole region of Judea, uh, the region where Jesus is born, and yet he has absolutely no legitimate claim to the throne. Here's how he came into power. He had a dad named Antipater who was Idumean. So if you go back in the Bible all the way to Genesis 36, you have, uh, well, before that, actually, you have Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. You remember these guys, the twins? They come out, and Jacob is the one who receives the blessing and the promise, and it's through him that all the nations will be blessed, and he'll have the Messiah. Well, then there's his brother Esau, the guy who sold his birthright for some soup because he was hungry. Remember this guy? Well, that guy Esau later becomes the father of Edom, this, entire, this whole other country. He's the father of that country, and guess what happens? Edom and Israel are in conflict the entire biblical narrative all the way through. And so this guy, Herod, is an Edomite, an Idumean. And so imagine what it's like to be a faithful Jew, somebody who's been faithful to the Torah your whole life, and the person who's reigning over you is from Edom. He's not even a Jew. Right? He doesn't believe the same scriptures. He doesn't believe, uh, he's not loyal to the same God. And he's supposed to rule and represent you and your interests in the world. And guess what? You're pretty bummed on this guy. And so uh, Herod is this guy who actually had been made king of the Jews by Rome, another foreign oppressor. Just one more symbolic way to say to Israel, you're still in exile. Your exile is not over. Uh, God's not on the throne of Israel. His Davidic ruler is not ruling, and so you are still in exile. He's not Jewish, and he's gotten in bed with the Roman power, and so he's just cutting a piece of pie for himself. Right? He just has a slice of power, if you will. And so he's not seen by the Jews as a Jew, and he's called king, but it's something completely concocted by the Romans, and it's a product of force of will and political conniving. So that's, this is the guy that we're reading about today. He has zero legitimate claim to David's throne, and he knows it. And so when a question comes, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews, it's a destabilizing question. And we know from history that he's a jealous leader. He's the kind of person who killed three of his own sons because he was nervous that they were going to cut in on his rule. He killed one of his wives, and then when he was about to die, he had 300 people uh, rounded up into a public building to be killed after it was announced that he was dead. Thankfully, all the guards were like, yeah, no, he's dead, we're done get out of here, right? And so that's what happened. But this is the kind of person Herod is. And 
This is just in uh, the writings of history. And so Herod, not being steeped in the traditions of the Jewish Bible, would have to ask, where is this king supposed to be born? So he gathers some people around him, and they read Micah 5 to him. Of course, it's in Bethlehem. And so uh, he plots a search-and-destroy mission after this child, and as the story goes, an angel protects Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and they become refugees in Egypt. And the Magi go home without giving any clues away to where the uh, boy is. Now Herod realizes that the Magi had tricked him, and he went on a rampage, and he kills every male boy under two in Bethlehem. It's a total tragedy. Most historians think it would be something like 20 to 30 boys. And what's fascinating to me about Matthew's opening to the gospel is he is completely honest with what humans are like when they reject God's definition of good and evil. Uh, We become utilitarian and define good around what suits our interests at the moment. And so... Uh, what happens to humans when they reject God's definition of good and evil is they grasp for control and for power. And, and it's a mess, and it's utterly heartbreaking, and innocent lives are lost. Um, if you are wearing an ancient Israelite hat as you read this story, what's the imagery that starts to come to mind? What kind of story is Matthew telling us? If you think, you don't have to think long and hard to go back in Israel's story to realize that there was another corrupt ruler who was willing to kill off male Israelite boys. Remember Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Herod is being cast by Matthew in the role of Pharaoh. And he's saying, as this story unfolds, put Herod in your Pharaoh category because he's acting like a Pharaoh, murdering Jewish boys to keep power. And Jesus coming up out of Egypt, is now being cast as the new Moses. Jesus is now playing the role of Moses. And so he will lead the people in the ultimate exodus, the ultimate end of slavery to sin and death and the devil. And so Jesus is seen here both as the true king of the Jews and the new Moses, leading a rescue mission for God's people. This is the way Matthew is setting up his story. So you're recalling all of these images from a previous part of the biblical narrative. John 1 says, in comparison between Jesus and Moses, he says, Moses brought the law. The law was given through Moses. Right? Well, let's just read this, actually. John 1 says, the word, this is a reference to Jesus, became flesh. The eternal word, the one who existed eternally, became human, took on human nature. And dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Down to verse 16 From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. So, what does it look like when God comes on the scene? It looks like grace and truth. Moses was great, and he led a rescue mission, but through that also came law by which we became aware of sin. But through Jesus, we receive grace and truth. So when we look at Herod's story, he's a witness to one who is greater, and he's going to show us the threat of grace and the threat of truth. This is not your typical Christmas message, I'm sorry. Um, Wrestled with it all week and decided to just leave it alone because in the end, Herod is a helpful witness He's a contrast witness. 
Uh, so the first thing that I want to show you this morning is that the grace of God in Jesus threatens to end our illusions. Herod is a fascinating person, but he is a very deluded one. Um, and so it, it threatens the false narratives. Grace threatens false narratives about ourselves and about our world. Herod had imbibed a narrative from the Romans and their whole imperial system about power and success and how it was to be won and secured. And so his violence was merely the outflow of a worldview that accepted that power is ultimate and security is won by putting other people down. And this is the the trouble with all illusions. Illusions lead to entitlement. Herod's illusion was about power, and it led to his entitlement to secure it. The birth of Jesus is a confrontation with that worldview uh, and that pattern of life that results from it. Because there's this news of a Messiah for Herod, and it troubles him and all Jerusalem with it because it's a confrontation. It's a confrontation between power structures. Jerusalem knew what would happen with a troubled Herod. And this is interesting. Anyone who lives by an illusion uh, will end up shaking other people around them when you mess with their illusion. William H. Auden says this about illusions. I love it. He says, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. This is a dark poem. And yet, it's fitting for a Herod who loves the illusion that he has power and control through the way that he has connived and the way that he has manipulated and through the force of his will, that this has somehow led him to security. And so this whole illusion is going to die rather than be transformed, unfortunately. And so Jesus Christ comes full of grace and truth. And you... You can't have one without the other. He comes with grace, always partnered with truth. Uh, What is truth? This will be asked later in the Gospel of John. It is what corresponds to reality in Christ. And when you bump into truth, it uh, it actually reshapes everything else around you. And Herod is under several illusions. And uh, what's interesting about any given illusion about reality is it always uh, has a false view of what the real problem is. And so grace threatens to end the illusion to what's wrong. Every worldview has a problem. What's wrong with the world and how do you set it right? And every worldview has a solution to that problem. Herod may have likely just seen the problem as not having power. And so the solution is gain and keep power. And, and so the, the world is this game of thrones according to Herod, right? And the modern world is not too different. Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the father of our postmodern moment, uh, in many ways said that, yeah, hey, Western world, you don't believe in God anymore, so just have the virtue to own it, okay? Right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, just be virtue enough, virtuous enough to admit that you don't actually believe in God. And when you finally do that, you'll realize that all that's left is just a will to power. There isn't good and evil, there's actually just weak and strong, right? And that's a huge oversimplification of Nietzsche, but at the end of the day, that's where he lands, There's just a will to power at the end of the day. In our context, uh, there's plenty of that to be found, right? That um, the the left and the right each find a problem, and it's all external, right? The left says the problem's in in economic inequality and power structures that create inequality. The right says there's uh, not enough individual freedom and too many external forces controlling 
things, right? And so an individualistic society says that the main problem is anything that prevents me from expressing myself. This is our cultural context. Now, these are really complex issues, but the grace and truth of Jesus comes onto the scene in the birth of a Messiah that simply says this, your way of conceiving the problem is too shallow. It's not external. It's intrinsic to human nature. First John is this letter where John articulates the problem being the flesh, the world, and the devil. It's a trifecta, that the flesh being our human nature, there's an intrinsic problem that I don't want what I should want as a human. It's not just the external things in my environment. There's something broken in humanity. But uh, he also says that the world is a problem, that there's systems set up that are stained by sin and idolatry. And those perpetuate more issues. But there's also a devil. There's a deceiver and someone who is on a short leash, but has leash to make a mess of things for a time. And so what's the solution to this kind of worldview problem? Well, Herod reduces the solution down to just power. Uh, I don't know what it is for you, but I tend uh, to need to confess that I, I frequently look at problems materialistically. Like if we could just right, get this or save this, or right, we think so often in just purely materialistic ways. But the grace of Jesus says, actually, you have to look at life through a messianic, not just materialistic lens. Grace says the illusion of the problem being material only or systemic only is far too shallow. We actually have a problem with nature itself and the system and an enemy who deceives. And it all works together. And so the birth of a Messiah says you need help from the outside. Here's the quintessential issue with our illusion. It's that I should be okay on my own. That's the illusion of our modern moment, that I'm fine by myself. And the birth of a Messiah, the grace of God appears and says, Actually, that's all an illusion. You're not fine on your own. You're not okay on your own. And so, uh, on, a, on a personal level, grace implies this, that there is something that has gone wrong in me, uh, and grace is necessary. Grace wouldn't be necessary if nothing deeper was wrong. And so the truth of grace, and uh, the truth and grace combo is this, that uh, there is a problem, and the answer is not trying harder. And for a guy like Herod, the problem is securing myself, and all I have to do is manipulate and control. And that's not going to solve his problems or the world's problems, because there's an issue far deeper. And so this Christmas message, I'm going to say, is actually deeply offensive to our sensibilities, because our sensibilities say, I'm fine by myself, I'm self-sufficient. But the grace message of Christmas is actually there's a Messiah who's come because we're not fine. And so grace comes and destroys that illusion and says the the, the problems are not just surface and external, and they can't just be solved by better systems or trying harder, that the plight of humanity has to be solved with a Messiah. But the, the, thing, the second thing that Herod sees is that, uh, that grace threatens uh, our rule of ourselves as well, the illusion that we can rule ourselves. If you go back to Psalm 2, I'll, I'll read a bit of it for you. This is kind of the, one of the first instances or the main text that refers to the anointed one or the Messiah. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the Herods of the world appear? 
and peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. And they say, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. God's oppressive. His ways are oppressive. Let's get all of that off us. But the Lord scoffs in heaven and says, yeah, okay, that's not going to work. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, right? And he says to the king, you are my son. I have begotten you, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And he goes on to say that whoever takes refuge in that Messiah, that king, will be blessed. And so this is the idea of a Messiah who comes from the outside, because the illusion is that we're okay on our own. The grace of God says, you're not okay, but I've come to help. And so the help comes in the form of a Messiah who is a ruler. It's a royal term for a king. And the whole point of what we're saying here is that Herod is threatened by another king, a contest of a power. And grace does this. It says, um, you, you haven't ruled your life in the direction you were created to rule it. In fact, one of my favorite lines in the book of Judges over and over and over in the Old Testament, before, right before the book of Samuel where we have the announcement of a king, you have this line, in those days when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the result of what we try to do when we live under the illusion that I'm okay on my own, is we try to lead our life on our own. And the result is we all do what's right in our own eyes, and the book of Judges is absolute unmitigated disaster in Israel. Just cycle of violence and oppression after violence and oppression. And so the, the way the Old Testament story works is it leads you to conclude that a king would be good news. And so we get that in David, and then there's peace in the land for a while. Uh, it's fascinating, but I, whenever I buy the illusion that I should be okay on my own without God, I, I'm likely to think that running my life on my own should work somehow. And, and it, I want to ask you this morning to just sit with the question, where am I most tempted to try to live my life on my own like I'm the king? Where does it appeal most to me to build my own kingdom? Some of us, it's at work. Some of us, it's in our home. And we, like Herod, feel that we're most secure when we have control, have control of the way you perceive me, have control of the way um, things are going with all of my money, have control with the way things are going with my workplace, right? whatever that is for us. But what we find in the grace of God is good news that we're not in control and we're not meant and created to be okay on our own. We finally see this, this last contrast in Herod uh, in the way that he rules, in contrast to the way that Jesus rules. What's the shape of Jesus' rule? How does his character decidedly different than that of Herod. How do we see Jesus' worthiness as a king and a ruler? Well, first of all, Jesus comes in humility, and his whole approach to a kingdom is not through force, but through his own submission. Uh, it's far easier to follow a leader who is willing to submit than it is to follow a leader who just expects everyone else to. And so Jesus offers us a hum, hum, humility and a vulnerability in the way he approaches his leadership. He receives a kingdom from his father rather than taking one by force. This is the third thing we see in Herod, that grace threatens an end to any illegitimate means of securing ourselves. 
It threatens to end our illusions that we're okay on our own. It threatens to end our attempt to rule our own lives because Jesus comes as help from the outside and a king who will rule. And finally, we see that he's a king of grace and he will secure us. The way that Herod establishes his security is through violently killing innocent life. When you don't have grace, what you have is your own effort, uh, which leads you to do whatever it takes to secure yourself. But grace, if you understand grace for what it is, it secures you. It secures you and, and in spite of your best efforts, actually. And here's how the grace of Jesus works. Christ comes and he secures you through allowing evil to do its worst to him. He allows violence to come down on him so he can secure you. See, when Jesus goes to the cross, he's not securing himself against his enemies. He's going to the cross to secure his enemies as friends. He's reconciling us. The the death of innocent lives in Matthew chapter 2 foreshadows what will come in Jesus. That he's the baby who was delivered so that later he could be the man who is sacrificed. You see, what happens is Jeremiah is quoted, Jeremiah 31, where Rachel, the mother of Jacob, the mother of Israel, if you will, is weeping. It's a voice of Ramah, which is Bethlehem, and it's where Rachel was buried. And as the exiles in Jeremiah would have been passing her grave to Babylon, she's seen figuratively as weeping over her children, that the death of her children is causing her sorrow. So why does Matthew quote this here? Why does he say this is important for you to know that it's fulfilled? Because it's important for us to understand that grief in the Bible is the pathway uh, to life. That death ultimately leads to life. That death is not the final word on life, but it is a doorway through which grace flows. Uh, What the end of the story points to is that the security that we all long for cannot come to us by any other means than the willing and generously given life of Jesus. That it's his death that will lead to our security. Herod's perfectly willing to force somebody else to suffer so that he can be secure. But Jesus, by contrast, is willing to enter into suffering so that you can be secure, forgiven of the worst of your life, forgiven of sin, reconciled to your Creator. See, the throne of Herod is one of anxiety and constant worry, but the throne of Jesus is peace and security, and it's shared, and he he offers his peace to you. In all of this, Who is the one and which is the pattern that is worthy of following? Certainly Herod is worthy of our kind of um, suspicion and we should look at his story and go, man, that's monstrous. But when we look at that in contrast to the way of Jesus, we see what true worthiness is. That the way of Rome is always going to corrupt the Herods of the world. But the way of the gospel, the way of grace, makes Herods actually into sons because of what Jesus suffered. We might not fight the pressure to kill people to secure ourselves. I hope not today. But we will fight the pressure to ignore the least, the last, and the lost around us for our own sake. Uh, We will definitely be tempted to secure ourselves through our work, through our efforts, maybe even giving very little attention to your spiritual underpinnings, but to... Uh, your material things or whatever. And what I would ask you to do today is to consider, where do I find my security? 
How am I finding security today? Because the gospel says the only means of security that's legitimate is the security offered to you freely. What you offer by way of your own effort and energy doesn't get you anywhere. And this is what we see in Herod. Let me just throw a chart up here to try to put together what I've been trying to get at today. The illusion is that I'm okay on my own. This is Herod. He's an independent and he, wants, he doesn't want to be in submission to anyone. And so he leads to the solution that I need to get free of any external demands. And so if another king comes into my world, he's a threat right, to me being okay on my own. The result is I'll secure myself by force of will. And I want to say to you that this is not only the way of Herod, but this is actually just the way of our culture. This is the way our culture works, from the illusion that I can be self-sufficient. And so the, the solution is always to get free of any external demands, and so that's why we're commitment-phobic. And the result is that I secure myself by force of will. I just try harder. Let me ask you how that's working. Does that lead to life and peace? No, it doesn't. Of course not. And so here's what we see in Jesus, the flip. The reality is that Jesus has come to rescue humanity. Right? Not, uh, not through saying try harder internally, but saying I'm here to rescue you externally. I'm external to you to rescue you by reconciling you to your creator and giving you my spirit to empower you. So the solution is enter his kingdom, come under submission to the one who has life and peace to offer. And so the result is you're actually secure already in his grace. You don't have to do anything to be secure. He says, the love that the Father loved me with is now the love with which you're loved, right? In John 17. And so this is the way this works. The threat of grace is the threat against illusions and the threat against self-rule and the threat against false means of security. But the grace of God says it's actually not dependent on you. Your security is not dependent on you. Your acceptance is not dependent on you. What is dependent on you is simply to respond and accept that you're already secure by a God who loves you and has given himself for you. And so when you see what Jesus has done, that he's become the one who's died in your place, right? To say, here is security. I've already taken the worst. Nothing uh, can be taken from you in terms of my security. It is freely yours. When you see that, it begins to melt you, and he becomes the kind of person you want to be like and follow and yield your life to. And so that's the reality we celebrate at the table. We're going to sing a couple more Christmas songs here today because what we're doing is we're exalting the one who's, who's come, the one who has come at Christmas. We're not waiting for some thing to happen. It has happened. Security is yours today through faith. And so we go to the table to celebrate that and say, you've secured me by your body and your blood. That no, nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is Romans 8. And so we go to the table to celebrate the reality of true security, true hospitality extended to us from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness and grace that comes to us in a way that threatens our self-sufficiency. We want to confess this morning that we would love to freely lay those up to you and say, trying harder (laughs) uh, to secure ourselves is bad news, and we want to reject that way. We want to come to your table accepting the good news that you have secured us already by your grace. God, in all of this, I pray that 
if there's any word that is confusing, that the, the clarity of what your scriptures do have to offer would stick with us so that what we can do is to just come to your table and receive. We're glad to participate in the sacrament this morning that reminds us that the only thing to do is to receive. And so we do. We come to you to receive this morning to celebrate what we have received from you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.